Well, hello again, church. Um, welcome again. I'm glad that you're here this morning. Welcome those that are joining, on, on, joining us online, those that are joining us in Edgewood as well. We're glad that you're here. Um, so for the last eight weeks, we've been um, eight weeks plus two with baptism and at some point serves, but eight weeks we've been talking about what it looks like to be faithful, what faithfulness is, how that um, looks in our lives, how we live out our faithfulness as Christians, how to be faithful with our time, how to be faithful with, with our money, how to, how to be faithful in our parenting, faithful with our work in the workplace. Last week we talked about um, being faithful with our bodies and what that looks like um, to, as Paul said in Romans chapter 12, present our bodies as a living, as a living sacrifice. Um, the importance of that in light of everything that Jesus has done and God has done and the lengths that he has gone to allow us into his presence, um, how we should respond to that. And that's to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. In verse 2 of Romans 12, he said, in addition to presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, he says that we should not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed um, to his image, to the pattern after Jesus and the way we do that, it's by renewing of our minds. So this morning, I want to pick up right there. Uh, in Romans chapter 12, as, as Paul lays that out for us, therefore, because of all of that stuff, everything God's done, we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice, be con not conformed, but transformed by renewing of our mind. And in verses 3 through 8, Paul says this, and I want to read this together um, as we begin this morning. Um, so he says, in, in starting in verse 3, after 1 and 2, of course, he says, For by the grace given to me, he says, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So he says here, he, sa he, says, he says that we should think differently. Right after he says... We should be transformed, and it's by renewing of your mind. Now he says how with our minds we are to begin to think, namely how we are to begin to think of who. Think of that guy or that woman. Think of them there. Think about this world. No, he says this is how you're to think about yourself. The first response when we talk about renewing our mind is changing and being mindful of the way we think. And he uses this word in the Greek, Froneo, he uses it four times, or, a, or a, a version or form of this word four times in this one verse. So he says that we should froneo, think, but in context, it's to have an opinion of oneself, but it's to have a modest, specifically a modest opinion of oneself. So he says that we are not to think, froneo, of himself more highly, hyperphroneo, which means thinking arrogantly of oneself. Right? Having a high view of oneself. He says, don't think that way. He says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, froneo, but to froneo, think with sober, sophroneo judgment. And sophroneo means with sound mind or with the right mind. So Paul is saying here at the onset of this, he says that we should be renewing our minds. He tells us how we begin to think specifically of ourselves. And he's urging us, exhorting us not to have a high view of ourselves. He says, be careful. Don't exalt yourself. Don't think arrogantly. We should be thinking modestly of ourselves and being real with ourselves and who we are and understanding who we are and who we are in Christ. If we remember, verse 1, everything that Jesus has done, therefore present our bodies as a living sacrifice, laying ourselves down from last week, transforming, being transformed to his image by the way we begin to think even of ourselves. And this is the renewed mind that we should have. And it's each according to the measure of faith that he has assigned. And you can mark that in your Bible. That's going to be a theme that we're going to see as we go through this this morning. It is to each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Not the measure of faith that we can muster up on things, but it's the measure of faith that God has assigned to you. Paul says, by the grace given to me, according to the measure of faith that you have, you need to think of yourself with humility, not arrogance. And think of ourselves and view ourselves as God sees us. 
not in comparison to other people. William Griffith Thomas says, Humility is the direct effect of consecration because pride is and ever has been the great enemy of true righteousness. Humility is what keeps us from comparison and competition within the body. And it's very important for us to grab that point and that exhortation from Paul, given what he's about to say in verses 4 and 5 and following, he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to your faith, if serving in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, and the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So you may be able to see where we're going with this this morning in terms of what we're to be faithful with. Last week it was be faithful with our bodies. This morning we're going to talk about what it is to be faithful with our gifts and being faithful with those things that God has specifically given us to be used for him. And the way we begin to identify those things or use those is have the right perspective and first and right perspective is how we view and think of ourselves before anything else. That we should walk humbly, not arrogantly. But then he says in this, he says, we're individually members one of another. So we're, we're, we're one member of a greater whole. Right? He says, we're one body and we have many members And the members do not all have the same function. So Paul is, he's drawing this analogy as it pertains to the body. You think of your hand, your foot, your eye, your ear, your nose. They all have different function within the body, but they all make up the body. But they're still individual members of your body. And they carry importance because they're individually a part of the whole. And they exist as part of the whole. If you were to lose a member of your body, is it still a member of your body? If it's no longer connected to the body, it's not. It's just itself over there. And how useful is a finger on the ground over there if it's not attached to your hand? (laughs) Not very. We'll come back to that here in a minute. Not exactly sure I'm going to come back to that, but I promise I'm going to loop back around on that one. But we separate ourselves from the whole when we begin to hyperphroneo when we begin to think arrogantly of ourselves and we begin to prop ourselves up, we separate ourselves from the rest of the body. Because in effect, the, the implication there is when we exalt ourselves or we're thinking arrogantly of ourselves, that means we're elevating ourselves. but does that mean everybody else stays the same? No, what's implied in that is we, if we were to elevate ourselves, that means we have to push somebody else down. Somebody else goes down as we go up. Uh-oh. Because that doesn't, that, that doesn't benefit the body. If you, if you elevate one member over the other, the others are going to suffer. But this actually sets us against the body and elevates function within the body instead of elevating, say, unity within the body, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, or diversity within the body that you see throughout God's creation. And it doesn't elevate mutual submission to one another that you see in Ephesians 5.21. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. So within the body, there is unity, there is diversity, and there's mutual submission within it. As all members are part of the greater whole and they serve one another to support the whole is the picture that Paul is getting at here. And this is the pattern that we are to conform ourselves to from verse 1 and 2. But now our culture today is completely contrary to this way of thinking. 100% in the opposite direction of this mindset right here. The pattern of the world is, is you do you, boo. You do you and don't let anyone tell you any different. If anyone tells you any different, they're a hateful bigot and they're trying to destroy your individualism. That's what our world says. But what Paul just says in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven... You are individually, he's not trying to destroy your individualism. Right? It's, it's according to the measure of faith that he has assigned to you. He has given you something specific. Right? It's according to the grace given to us. It's all according to him and what he gives specifically to us. He's not trying to destroy our individualism, 
but he's saying you are individually a part of a greater whole. Therefore, the function of your life supports the whole. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart. And it runs completely contrary to the pattern of our world and specifically our culture and where we're heading. God's pattern is humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you. But he may exalt you at the proper time, 1 Peter 5, 6. At the proper time. Our struggle and our sinfulness wants to exalt ourselves and our selfishness right now. I want to be better than you right now so that I can get that job. So that I can get that position. If I'm better than you right now, I get one over you. That's not walking humbly. That doesn't mean you need to strive to excel. But if you're pushing someone down to elevate yourself so that you can move forward, that's not. You're conforming to the wrong pattern. But we should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt us. The word exalt, it means to raise to the very summit of opulence and prosperity. It's to raise to dignity, honor, and happiness. Selfishness wants that instantaneously. We want that right now. Individualism says you deserve it right now. So you do you. And don't let anyone tell you any differently. Because if they do, they hate you for it. And they're just trying to keep you down. That's the twist and that's the contradiction from our world versus what God says. You are individually part of a whole and you are given something to be used for that whole, for the benefit of the whole. So humble yourselves so that he may exalt you. And at the proper time, at the proper time to the summit of opulence and prosperity, Countless times throughout God's word, he promises life abundantly. He promises prosperity. He promises blessing on top of blessing. But at the proper time, but we want it now. Give me what I'm to have now. That's the, that's the prodigal son, you know, the parable of two sons. One of them says, I want my inheritance now. But what does sinfulness do when we get our inheritance now? He goes and he blows it on this world and ends up with nothing and finds himself in, 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 in a pit with pigs, eating pods that pigs are eating until he finally comes to his senses. I would be better as a servant in my, in my father's house than where I'm at. And he responds. But we want it now. And if we have it now, we will squander it now without an understanding of what it is that we're getting and what we're supposed to do with it. So, Paul continues, verse 6, he says, have these gifts, they differ according to the grace given us, but then he says, let us use them. So what we're giving, Paul's exhortation here is that we should begin using the thing that he has given us to use. It's, it's foolish to not use what he's given us. And we're not going to go specifically into the, the spiritual gifts or what those giftings actually are. There are several lists throughout the New Testament that would list gifts. None of them are exhaustive. You know, they just show what can be given. But the point here and the focus here is not to the Romans. It's not on the gifts. And for us today, it's not going to be on the specific gifts. But if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you see a parallel text. Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And it's a parallel text because he's writing to the Romans and letting them know about the giftings. You have these things. You need to use these things. This is what it looks like for you in the life of a believer to begin supporting the body that you're now connected to. But in the Corinthian church, they had a different problem. The Corinthian church, they struggled because they put greater emphasis on the gift itself instead of the giver of the gift or the purpose of the gift. So Paul lays out very similarly to the Romans the same principles, but he expands on them so that they can get a better understanding of it. And I think it can for us this morning. So in verse 4 of chapter of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So he says, there are varieties. So right there, you can take away, there are numerous things that God gives away. It's not one thing that God gives away. It is a variety of things that God gives. And he gives gifts, he gives service, and there's activity, right? So gifts is charismata. It's where we get the word charismatic. The charismatic movement comes from, from that because there's an emphasis on gifts. 
but it's abilities that enable a person to glorify and serve God. Simply enough, that's what gifts are. That's what charismata means. They're gifts that were given to glorify and serve God. But then he says, there's also varieties of service. That's diakonia or ministries. There are different ways in which and different opportunities for service. So he gives gifts and there's a variety of gifts and there's a variety of ministries to use those gifts in. And then he says, there's a variety of activities or energimata. There's different effects. There's variety of manifestations of the Spirit's power at work. So three things present there. He says there's a variety of gifts that we have. There's a variety of ways to use those gifts. And there's a variety of effects that those gifts bring. So he's making this case that there's not one gift. There's not one way to use it. And there's not one one effect of it. There's a variety of each. Okay, you see the picture that he gives. And then in verse 7, he says again, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. So he lays this out. There's a variety of these things. The Corinthian church gets this all out of whack. They have emphasis on specific gifts, what they determine to be the greater gifts. And if you don't have that gift, then you're lacking the spirit. And that's not at all the case. That runs contrary to what Paul just says. He says there's a variety of gifts, but what? The same spirit. There's a variety of service, but the same Lord. There's a variety of activities, but the same God. And it's that God who empowers them all in everyone. So it's not one for one specific thing for one effect. It's many for many different things for many different effects. That's what Paul is saying. And it's given the manifestation. Manifestation means that's how things come to be. That's how you see things played out in front of you. Jesus is a manifestation of God on earth. You want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus because he's that manifestation. So the manifestation it's given of the Spirit for the common good. But the problem they have is they created competition. They comp- out of comparison within the body, they're always looking at what someone else has, and you don't have what I have, therefore you're not as spiritually sound as I am. And that runs completely contrary to what God says here. That's an arrogance. It's a lack of humility. It promotes disunity. It does not celebrate diversity, and there is no mutual submission. And if everyone has the same gift, where is diversity? I use this better than you do. There's disunity. There's no mutual submission. All vying for the same manifestation. And you can see this today in many places. If you don't have that gift, I can teach you how to get that gift so that you can be just as spiritual as I am. It's not biblical. But it's the same spirit, same Lord, and same God who empowers them all. This is the triune God. And as much as there's unity, diversity, and mutual submission within the Trinity, between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, so it is with this church. There's diversity, diversity, unity, and mutual submission. It should be present within us. And then for what? Verse 7. It's for the common good. The word for common good there is simpharo. But it's to, br- it's to bear together or it's to bring together. The purpose of the gifts is to bring together, not push apart. It's you bring those things together. And then Paul says in chapter 14, four times, in verse 4, verse 5, verse 12, and verse 26, it is for the building up of the church. The sole purpose for him empowering you with any gifting whatsoever of a variety of gifts is that so you would glorify him and it would build up his church. It's not to glorify you and build you up. It's not to exalt you. It's to glorify him and build up his church. The sole purpose for him giving you a gift so do you think you could be able to, you could get a gift and use it for anything other than those two things? I would say no. I mean, I, could, I think I could make a pretty good argument that as a believer, you are given a gift, but if you attempt to use that gift for anything other than his glory and the building up of his church, it's going to fall. You may think you're using a gift, and many people do. I believe they'll answer for that one day, but many people think they're using a gift, but it's a detriment, it's confusing, and it points people away instead of building people up. Just a little soapbox for a minute. But verse 11, or verse 8 through 11 to read that, for to one is given through the Spirit an utterance of wisdom, wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, uh, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, 
to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, uh, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one in the same spirit. Driving home that point, it's the same spirit who apportions to each individually as he wills. So you see there, you're individually a part of a whole and he apportions to you, empowers and apportions to you what you are to use for him, for the building up of his church. Now, paralleling Romans 12 verses 4 and 5 as we're a member of the church, Paul goes on here and he expands on this greatly to the Corinthians because of the struggle that they have. But I want to read this together. I think this will can clearly, as he says this, help us see how we are to function within the body. So in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, we'll read through 26 together. He, he says, uh, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist one of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If an ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. It says, I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, right? nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which, are more, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So he uses this picture of our physical body to drive home a point that we are all connected to one another in the body. If all suffers, one suffers. If one rejoices, all rejoice. Anybody ever jammed their finger? Word, every one of us jammed a finger. When you jammed your finger, what was the first thing that you did? Ouch! Or some other word choice, depending on the severity of the jam. But instantly, whenever something like that happens, say you, you just you jam your finger, instantaneously is shockwave goes through your body that gets up to your brain that says, that hurt, and your response is, ow! Right? Is instantaneous. As soon as it happens, it's, your body recognizes something just happened. It was painful. And then what do we do? If you're like me, chances are when you jam your finger, immediately you grab it. You put your hand over it, you protect it, and you draw it in close. And you just, ow! That flipping hurt. <laughs> but the response is when it comes to our body, we jam our finger, we seek to protect it, we draw it in close to the rest of our body, and then we inspect it, to make sure it's okay. How bad was it? Can we wiggle it now? It starts to swell up. Well, we need, to, we need to mend it. That's the point he's getting at here. The emphasis is not on the gift here. The emphasis is on how we function within the body together. How we take care of one another. Paul's like, we'll get to the gifts later. And if you see from chapter 13 and then you get to chapter 14, Corinthian church, they had gifts jacked up. They were all over the place. Specifically on one. But the point is that he's getting at is, no, you're part of the whole. You're individually part of the whole, and you should be caring for one another. The things that you are giving, you are empowered with, should be used individually for the building up of this body and the care of this body so that the body may grow, so that others may see and come to know and become part of the body. That is the whole point of it. But it does no one any good to have a gift if they don't know how to properly use it. 
So before we could spend any time, any series, any teaching on specific gifts, if we don't know how to be faithful with that gift or what the purpose of that gift is, there's no point in even having the gift. But consider for a minute any superhero movie you've ever seen or any origin story. There's been plenty in the last decade and a half, some good ones, I would say. There's been some bad ones too. But anyways, consider, consider the superhero in those movies. Whenever that person realizes this power that they have, all of a sudden something happens and they got all this power, right? Does that immediately make them superheroes? No. Well, unless you're Captain America. He was kind of a hero beforehand. But nonetheless, when they immediately, when they first got that power that they had, they weren't immediately heroes. The first thing they had to do was begin to understand what that power is and how to use it. Matter of fact, you can see from those stories, they typically did more damage than good at the very beginning of having this power because they didn't know how to use it. But over time, they began to use it, develop that, see what to do with it before any good began to come from it. But they had to understand what they had. Now, conversely, there are those others in superhero movies who have power as well. But they think very highly of themselves. They don't respond with modesty and humility. They think arrogantly. They become self-centered all about themselves. So they take this power and they're self-serving with it. And they do damage and wreak havoc all over the place. What do we call them? Villains. So you see the distinction. When it comes to a gift... The giver of gifts is the creator of the universe, church. And he gives you and I at the moment of our conversion a gift that he determines for you to have. That matter of fact, he determined for you to have before the foundation of creation. And he determined for you to have it by his power. And he empowers you, apportions it to you to be used for the growth and the building up of his body for his glory and your good. That is the purpose of any gift that we are to have. So if we understand that, as Paul said to the Romans then, let us use that gift. Now, what are the implications of not using that gift? I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. And I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, to land here this morning because we can look at what Paul has to say. And Paul is brilliant. He's one of the most brilliant writers in the history of the world And he's gifted by the Spirit with understanding, with discernment, and with communication and exhortation so that he can, with his apostolic authority, establish churches and teach them in the right way to do it so that we today can read that and understand how to go about things. But I want to look at Matthew 25, but what Jesus has to say. Jesus often spoke spoke in parables in some ways can be hard to understand aside from the clarity that Paul says. But I think it's awesome that Jesus uses this story here. And this is part of what's called the Olivet Discourse, um, where the disciples, they ask Jesus, hey, what what are the signs of the end of the age? What are the signs of of the kingdom of heaven coming? And Jesus begins to explain to them, there's the abomination of desolation, right? Less than the parable of the fig tree. And he just responds to them, and then he tells them the parable of the ten ten virgins at the beginning of chapter 25. And he's laying out for them, one, salvation and what that looks like. How we are to be ready for the coming of the kingdom, ready for the coming of the Lord. But then he gets to verse 14, and he shares this parable with them, the parable of the talents. And I want to finish with this this morning, because I think this will really help us see the importance and what it means to use what we've been given. So starting in verse 14, he says, For it, and it here, the, the object of that is, is the kingdom of heaven. If you look at verse 1, um, he says, For the kingdom of heaven. So it is the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them with his property. And he says, He gave to, he gave to one, he gave five talents to another two, and to another one, each, or to each, according to his ability. Sound familiar? So he, he has these servants, the master has these servants, and he knows the ability that these servants have, has, and he does not give them more than their ability can handle. Knowing who they are, he gives to each according to his ability. 
And then they are to do something with that. Right? But in, in, in this parable, we'll go ahead and just take it here that the master is Jesus and the servants are us. Specifically in context, the servants are Jews, tribulation Jews. But it can apply to the church here. So Jesus is the master, we are the servants. So Jesus, the master, he gives and entrusts, note the language, to his servants, his property. So everything that we have from anywhere is from the Lord. Every single thing that you own in this world is from the Lord. Your body that you think is yours, remember last week, is not your own. It is on loan from the Lord. So he gives and he entrusts them with his property. So we shouldn't limit the significance of talents here to just spiritual gifts or natural abilities or opportunities. It's not any one thing here, but the lesson is going to be clear. But one talent, you can note this if you don't know, one talent equates to about 20 years wages. So it's a unit of measure. It could be silver or gold, but a talent would equate to 20 years wages. So consider the significance of what has been given here to the one who got five talents that is literally a lifetime worth of wages that this man was entrusted with. And it's whose property? The master's property that he gives to his servant. So he gave to one five. He gave to another two. And another one. But in addition to that talent, he also gives another thing. There are, there are three things at play here. There's time. There's time at play, there's responsibility at play, and there's resources, right? Time because he went on a journey. Verse 19 will say that he, after a long time, he re returned. So they have a responsibility with time. They have a responsibility with what's been entrusted to them. And what's been entrusted to them is his property or his resources. So they have time, responsibility, and resources that they are to manage while he is gone. So how did they respond? Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he gave and he made five talents more. So kudos to guy number one. But note, immediately, he said at once. As soon as the master was gone, the implication is that he immediately went to work with what he'd been given. He didn't wait. The urgency was there for him. And at once he went. And in verse 17, so also... Uh, he who had the two talents made two talents more. So implication is the, the second dude, second servant, did the same thing. At once he went and doubled his resources. In verse 18, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. It's a completely opposite response than the other two. Two immediately went and took what they were given and put it to work and doubled it. And then the one guy went and dug a hole and stuck it in the ground. Now, verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts. So if Jesus is the master, if we are the servants, and then the master came back and settled accounts after a long time, the implication or the picture is, is that Jesus ascended into heaven. Right now, he is at the right hand of the Father, actively interceding on our behalf as his church. And one day, he will come again. So the master returns and he settles accounts. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Jesus has ascended to the Father. One day he is going to return and he is going to receive us and he is going to settle accounts with us, church. So he settles accounts with his servants. Verse 20, And he who had received the five talents came forward. I imagine he's in a good mood. Good mood. Masters come back after a long time. Hey, it's good to see you. I'm glad you're back. Look what I did. And he responds, Say, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. And it's, it's here. I mean, it's, it's understanding. I was given something. I was meant to do something with it. Whenever the master came back, here I am joyfully saying, Master, here's what I did with it. No, hey, can I keep this a little bit? What's my percentage? It's understanding. I'm the servant of the master. He gave me his property and trusted me with it. I've done something with it. Lord, here it is. And the, how does the master respond? To his servant here. Master said to him, Well done, 
good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Now, pause here for a minute. He says, you've been faithful over a little. He was entrusted with a lifetime worth of wages. I don't know what that would equate to nowadays. I can't do the math in my head, but I would imagine it'd be millions of dollars. A lifetime worth of it, but he was, he, was, he, was given, he was faithful over a little. So what is much? What is he going to be set over? What is the much that he's going to be set over in comparison to the little of a lifetime worth of wages? Think of an eternity worth of rewards. That's the distinction that's being made here. And then he says this, and here's the words, church, that I want you and I to grab a hold of in terms of doing what God sets up for us to do. To hear those words, yes, well done, good and faithful servant. But then he says, enter into the joy of your master. He says, enter into the joy of your master. I was gone for a long time. I missed you. It's great to see you. Thanks for doing what you did with what I gave you. Enter into my joy. Join me. I'm going to set you over much. There is much more that I have for you. And it's going to be so much more than what I just gave you. Then likewise, the second service servant, he who had the also had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. In the same response, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But real quick, I want to pause for a second. I want to go back to what we see today in our culture. And how the kingdom of heaven runs completely contrary to the kingdom of, to our world. It's three people... All were given the same thing, but each according to his ability. They were all given the same thing, different amounts, but each one of them, save one, two of them worked hard with that thing, produced a different amount, but the response for the master was exactly the same for both of them. I gave you to your ability what I know you can handle and I gave it specifically to you and they were faithful with it and they were rewarded and the master responded to them in that way. But that's, that's contrary to our culture. Our culture is let's spread it all out, everybody get even amounts and the result should be even. But that runs contrary to God's kingdom. But it's according to his purpose. He gives what we need according to our ability to be used for his glory. When we begin to make it about ourselves and try and use what he's given for ourselves, we end up like the third servant. The third servant, he comes, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. I knew it. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering seed where you, where you, where you scattered no seed or gathering where you scattered no seed. Well, naturally, right? He's the master. It's his prerogative. They're his servants. In the Greek, the Greek word really, truly translated to our language today is slave. He's the master. They are his slaves. But we can't put the connotation that our culture today would put on that word. But he's the master. They're his servants. It's his prerogative. Yes, servant, go scatter my seed. It's my property. I've given it to you. You go scatter it. You do the work. You bring me back what is mine. As it is in the kingdom of heaven, God has given us gifts to use for his glory and his good for the building up of his church that he will one day return and receive what is his. That's the picture. And it's to his glory, but it's for our good. And this man responded this way. I knew you to be hard. You reap where you did not sow. You gather where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And you, we maybe can understand if there's, if there's a man, if there's a servant, and he really believes this about his master, but this is an incorrect view of his master. He doesn't understand his master. It's an improper fear of his master. So there's two motives, and they sound the same, but the end result is quite different here. A certain fear of the Lord is critical to holy, faithful living. You can look at Proverbs 1.7, 1 Peter 1.17, but this is not a paralyzing fear. God's given us something and he expects us to use that 
But this man was fearful of him, did not understand his master. So he went, he says, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. And you see the complete contrast to the other servants. The other servants can joyfully come and say, you gave me this, look what I did. Good and faithful servant, well done, good and faithful servant, entered the joy of your master. Then here you have this man, master, I was afraid, I was scared. If he was so scared of the master, wouldn't it stand a reason that you might want to try and do something so that you don't come with just that? Do something more? It's an improper fear of the master. But here, have what is yours. And how the master responds here in verse 26, this reveals what the real motive really was in this servant. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. Versus good and faithful, wicked and slothful. He was, it was wickedness. It was evil in this man's heart. It was everything selfish. It was everything that had to do with him. It was arrogance on his part, his part, despite the fear. I'm afraid of you. I believe you're gonna do something wrong to me, so I'm just gonna bury what you gave me in the ground so that I can serve myself and I can be okay later. If I just give you back what you gave me, we're all good. But that's self-serving. That's not being sacrificial. That's not taking risk on what God has given said, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. Right? And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So he's saying, you should have at least done something with it. Anything, take it to a bank, just leave it there. Don't just dig a hole and put it in the ground. How foolish is that? But if the master was gone for a long time, maybe that servant may think, man, he's never gonna come back. What if he never comes back? I know where that 20 years worth of wages is at. But it's wicked and slothful. So the master responded, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. Give it to the one who has proven his worth. And verse 29 reveals the point of the parable. He says, for to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Simply put, those that are faithful will receive rewards. Those that are unfaithful will not. He says, enter into the joy of your master to the faithful. But to the wicked and the slothful, to the unfaithful servant, the implication from verse 30, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Every instance in Matthew that you read or in the Gospels of weeping and gnashing of teeth has to do with separation from a holy God. It has to do with hell. It has to, be, to do with the outer darkness separated. So the implication is that he is not going to have fellowship any longer with the master. Now I'm not going to stand here and, 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 and take time to make a case for a, a loss of salvation. You can't lose your salvation. but did this servant ever even have a heart that was set apart? That's a conversation for another day, I think, in the interest of time. But the importance is there in the parable that we are to be faithful what has been given. Unfaithfulness is not rewarded simply enough. And faithfulness is. Max Anders says this, he says, Many believers today know only a God of rules and wrath so they float passively in an attempt to excuse their sins of omission. God has given them ample opportunity to, love of, to learn of his love, but their own undisciplined hearts make them blindly foolish and they squander their lifetimes. They call themselves Christians, but they're biding their time trying to stay out of trouble, awaiting glory in heaven. In our lifestyle of comfort in Western culture, we are too easily lulled to sleep. We fail to live the life of obedient, faith-filled risk. So we fail to bear kingdom fruit, displeasing our master. Such action will come back to haunt us at the judgment seat of Christ. For he will return and he will settle accounts. So we should be faithful with what we are given. So be faithful with the gifts, the talents, the resources, the opportunities that we have the things that we've been given for the building up of the church that benefit all people and all those that not only come here, but those that are out there. Because if we begin to identify spiritual gifts and giftings that we have, and the only place that we exercise that gift is within these four walls, we've missed it, church. We've missed it entirely. 
The point is to be out doing it. So what does it mean then to recognize? How do we recognize our gifts? The emphasis in this, to this morning is not on the specific gifts, but how do we recognize what those are? Most of us know what our talents are, but, before, but, but, but there's a difference between talents and gifts. Right? Many people have different talents and abilities. That doesn't mean necessarily that it's a spiritual gift. Here's some distinctions between the two. A talent is a natural ability that you have. You either attained it by a combination of genetics or your surroundings. If you're born into a musical family and you grow up and everyone's playing musical instruments around you, you're going to develop this talent for music because it's a part of your genes and your surroundings. Both non-Christians and Christians have talents. They're developed by training and practice. They're used for hobbies and careers. Most of our talents, if we're lucky, we can enjoy doing that and that can lead to a career where we enjoy, we use our talent for our career, and we make money off of that. Praise the Lord for you if you're allowed to do that. But they can be used for kingdom purposes, but not necessarily are. That's a talent. Though ultimately we're given by God, given talents by God, all things come from Him. You can look at Exodus 31 with uh, Bezalel and the other skilled craftsmen. God gave instruction for the tabernacle and the furnishings, so He skilled, gifted men with ability to make those things according to His measure and what he commanded. So those are talents. Now, spiritual gifts are different. Spiritual gifts are given specifically by the power of the Holy Spirit. At our conversion, we are imbued with a spiritual gift. It's possessed only by Christians. It is my belief that they are fully developed when they're given. Your spiritual gift is fully developed when you receive the Holy Spirit. You're empowered. He empowers you and apportions to you as he wills. And they're used only for God's glory in ministering to others in the building up of his church. The difference between talents and gifts. But our struggle, though, is we want to attribute often spiritual gift to being a talent. I really enjoy doing this thing. I do it really well. Therefore, it's got to be my spiritual gift. And I wouldn't say that's the case. I would say we should be careful in that. But a while back, several years ago, I heard this. I'm pretty sure it came out of a book, so I can't quote the book. But... Three A's here when it comes to helping us identify what our spiritual gifts are. Is if it's something that we have an ability to do, an affinity for, and others have affirmed us in it, it could possibly be a spiritual gift. And it's something that you should look into. An ability to do, an affinity for, and others have affirmed you in. But we should still be careful. For the first... I don't know, six or seven years of me being a part of the body here at Stone Point. Um, the way I served the body was electric guitar one or two. But that was my serving. What, what I would say, the talent and ability that I had that I learned to use for God's glory every single week, and it was a joy, church. Many of you know that. If you've come here in the last handful of years, you didn't know that. But it was a joy. I can't, it was a blessing to my heart to stand on the stage and lead worship and play the guitar. I could say that that was God's gift to me and he enabled me to use that for his glory and I benefited from it. But when was the last time you saw me play guitar? See, the difference is, is, is I come to realize the Lord laid it on my heart very firmly that that was just a talent just an ability that he gave me. Yes. And I could use that for his glory. But what happens whenever he says, I got something else for you? And that was a wrestling that I had whenever the Lord laid on my heart. And he said, Cody, you know what? I've, I've, give, I've gifted you with something, but you can't use that gift effectively if you've got a guitar in your hands. And it was difficult. And I don't share that to prop myself up in any way, but just to give an example of the difficulty of realizing that. Because I enjoyed it. If you were to ask me, if I'm not on stage on a Sunday morning, you were to ask me what my desire is for that Sunday morning and what I would desire to do, it would be on stage leading you in worship with a guitar in my hand. Every single Sunday, church. That is my heart's desire. I enjoyed it that much. And I feel it blessed me that much. But God said, I got something different for you. Let that go. And how foolish of me to not respond. 
So I hope that's an encouragement for you. When we begin to try and identify gifts, is what, you've, what you are good at may not necessarily be your gifting, but gifting, what is that? Okay, let's get there. How do you determine what your actual gift is? There's spiritual gift assessments we have that can help you identify that, but the number one way that you and I can determine what our gift is is to get into ministry is to begin serving somewhere. Start doing something within the body as the Spirit leads you. Don't think of yourself more highly than you should. Don't think arrogantly, but think humbly. Don't become a yes man or a yes woman, but begin serving in the body and see how the Spirit leads. It took eight or, eight or nine years before I believe I landed in what my gifting may be here. But I served faithfully with what it was given and what I had until then, until that clarity came. So get in, begin to serving as the Spirit leads and He equips you. And if it's something that, 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 that is no burden to you whatsoever, if it's not a chore to you, if it comes naturally, if you're blessed by it, if you feel joy by it, if there's a freedom in it, it could be your spiritual gift. If you supernaturally have compassion on everyone, no matter what happens or the circumstance, chances are you have the gift of mercy. I don't have that. If you supernaturally, no matter what your circumstances are, in every instance, you trust the Lord. You have no problem trusting the Lord. No matter what comes, God, I trust you. And you have a peace in your soul, regardless of your surroundings and situations and circumstances. Chances are you have the gift of faith. So think of it that way. What is it that's in your life that you do within the body that is not a chore to you, not difficult, not hard, or anything? Chances are it could be your spiritual gift. But determine what that is. Use them. And determining it pleases the Lord. It glorifies the Lord. It benefits the whole body. And when we're satisfied with it, it honors God. So let's not waste time longing and yearning for things that we don't have or opportunities that are not there. Trust the Lord with what we do have, what He's given, and begin using them. Being faithful with our talents, faithful with our gifts for His glory, for our good, and for the building up of the church. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you that you have given us well, gifts. You've supernaturally empowered us, Lord, with something very specific for us to use for you. Lord, that we can participate in your grand plan that you laid forth before the foundations of the earth, Lord, you've called us to participate in that plan along with you, Lord, for the building up of your church, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we don't, we don't be found with empty hands at your coming, Lord. As you come to settle accounts, Lord, I pray from my heart that, yes, Lord, that I would hear, well done, good and faithful servant, Lord. I long to hear those words, Lord, but I want to, sh I want to share in the joy of my master. Above all else, Lord, I pray that that is my heart day in and day out. I pray that is the heart of our church, Lord. A longing to enter into the joy of our master. But because of what you have done in our life, Lord, and how we will respond to that in obedience simply because of who you are. I pray for us as a church and individually a part of it, Lord that you would help us to discover what you've given us, Lord, and how to use that for your glory and for the building up of your church, Lord. And to those ends alone, Lord, I pray that would be our heart and we would see you move in such a way, Lord, that would call us into your joy all the more. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.